Hello and welcome back to NAMT Radio. I'm your host, Rob Lawrence. And this time round, I have an amazing array of medical directors uh, to talk to, and uh, none other than our own uh, NAMT medical director, Dr. Douglas Coopers, um, Dr. John Cromer, and Dr. Vince Massesso. And uh, if you're familiar with those names, you will realise we have uh, many, many years of experience with us today. But before we get into the topic, which is the AMLS fourth edition, let's allow these esteemed uh, doctors to introduce themselves. So starting with you, Dr. Coopers, good morning and uh, introduce yourself, please. Good morning, Rob. Uh, Doug Coopers, I'm an emergency physician and EMS physician in central Pennsylvania with Geisinger Health System. And as you said, I'm the medical director for NAEMT, and it was an absolute pleasure to be the medical editor for the new AMLS textbook. Wonderful. And uh, Dr. Kramer. Good morning, folks. John Kramer. I'm a retired emergency physician, still doing a lot of EMS work and EMS medical oversight. Uh, retired a little over a year and a half ago from the Office of EMS of the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, where I was the director and have had the opportunity and really enjoyed working with Vince and Doug as the Associate Medical Director for the AMLS update. And a little aside before we move on, of course, you've also been very active within the National EMS Museum of late as well. Very much so. Thank you. Yes, we'll uh, put the link for that in the show notes as well, because uh, there's a lot going on there too. Dr. Massesso, good afternoon. Welcome. Hey, good afternoon, Rob. Um, it's wonderful opportunity to join uh, Dr. Koopas, Dr. Kramer here. It was wonderful to work with them on the AMLS project. Uh, I am also an emergency physician, emergency medicine physician in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania region, I'm EMS medical director. And I've been AMLS medical director now for something like 20 years. So it's, of course, uh, dear to my heart. AMLS, let's go into the, the, the backstory. This is the fourth edition. So, uh, Dr. Cooper, uh, to the, take us back a bit, obviously back to the origins of it. And obviously we're now, you've just, as you say, been involved in the rewrites. So what was in it then? What's in it now? Well, first of all, I I would recognize that uh, Dr. Massesso has been the medical director for the AMLS course for many, many years. So he sort of uh, predates my involvement with AMLS, but uh, that's a lead into the what was in it then, because uh, AMLS is one of the flagship courses of the National Association of EMTs, compendium of, uh, of courses. And I I think many, many folks are familiar with some of the, the other courses that are given also. It's probably worth pointing out that uh, like courses like PHTLS, pre-hospital um, trauma life support, uh, very popular in the United States. But an interesting fact is that AMLS is exceedingly popular, um, not only in the U.S., but it's the most popular course in Europe and some of the other countries where um, NAEMT courses are done. So, you know, it really is a, a course that is, is very popular. It's used by a lot of pre-hospital um, clinicians across the world, but it also is used by some uh, in developing countries, some in-hospital practitioners to get a handle on better advanced care for medical issues. That's uh, an amazing uh, bit of history there, but obviously within the four three rights, I mean, what has been considered for update and, and what 
is new that we need to pass on? Sure. In, in this fourth edition, there really has been a look at every single chapter. So, uh, you know, the, the updating and rewriting touches uh, the entire gamut of the, the text and the course. So there are new cases uh, throughout the, the book. And as an example of that, there's a lot of um, emphasis given in the proper way to take care of agitated patients these days. And uh, not only uh, in physical restraint, which is covered a lot in the safety book, but but also in how to do pharmacologic management of agitated patients that have uh, delirium. And uh, you know that uh, information is covered in the pharmacology section. There are some cases related to it, and it's also covered in the mental health section. So uh, throughout the book, it, it includes uh, medications that hadn't been in there before. There's information about uh, ketamine, of course, but also droperidol and the use of benzodiazepines and, uh, and the, the safety considerations when you are uh, treating a patient that is agitated and maybe a harm to themselves or others. Uh, that's uh, one example that touches on on several of the chapters and several of the the sections. There's updated information about um, destinations for patients. So, for example, some of the uh, naming even of patients' uh, destinations for stroke and stroke centers has changed since the last edition. That's been updated. The um, STEMI receiving centers or uh, chest pain centers, heart attack centers, the, the terminology has been updated to meet the uh, Joint Commission accreditation for, for such centers. New sections on stroke care, which uh, Dr. Massesso may want to talk a little bit more about, but the uh, neurology section has uh, some significant updates in uh, scales and scores for assessing stroke patients for patients that are having a stroke in general, but also identifying patients as well as possible that have potentially a large vessel occlusion stroke that might need a more advanced stroke. I just want to go back to agita agitated patients. Obviously, it's one of those EMS and, uh, and political hot potatoes, dare I say. And of course, uh, our colleagues such as uh, Doug Wolfberg, et cetera, have written articles about, you know, the, the legislative and the political aspects of administering some of these drugs. And obviously the decisions that our medics on the street have to take and the potential risks they put themselves in by administering them. And of course, there's some that, that that's there's there's a lot of stuff going on right now, and I think we've just seen, particularly in Colorado, the conclusion of a, of a a legal case, and people are obviously paying attention to that and are worried about it, either from a perspective of what am I administering to, am I going to be taken to court or jail for doing my job, you know, do you care to offer any views on that, or indeed sort of turn towards what you've recommended and commended in well, this, I, this know, edition? Yeah, I, th I think, Rob, the important part here is centering on what was centered on through the entire book and the entire course, and that is to be evidence-based and literature-based in what is appropriate. What does the science show us using the science and the literature to guide the, the evidence that makes the, the recommendations that are made in the in the book and, um, and also just you know, the general information that is that is given. And, you know, so on this topic, for example, uh, 
in the past, the term excited delirium was used. Uh, uh, and, and for right or wrong, it has fall, fallen under some, uh, some controversy. But, you know, it really isn't the best description at this point. So you won't find that term in the book anymore. But you will find uh, descriptions of patients who have delirium. And you will find descriptions of patients who are agitated or combative um, and and how those patients should be assessed. You know, you'll find lists of of the various medical conditions that might cause somebody to have delirium and agitation and be a, a potential harm to themselves. And sometimes it's as simple as you know, hypoglycemia, but it's not a simple hypoglycemia when the person is extremely agitated and violent. So what's the best way to, to take care of patients like this? And sometimes it is using medications to, to help pharmacologically treat their agitation. Other times it's using those things to allow a full assessment so you can then treat the hypoglycemia or whatever else they may have that's, that's causing the condition. Uh, all of that is described in the book. And again, uh, you know, I think my simple answer to this is that we have tried to be as evidence-based as possible so that the patient care can be as safe as possible for both the patient as well as the, the uh, clinicians that are caring for them. Thank you very much. That sets it out very, very clearly indeed. And uh, uh, just, just as an aside, obviously, we spend a lot of time transporting patients that are placed on some sort of hold by by folk that aren't necessarily us. Um, and in California, I have to say that we've just got a bill through where we are held harmless for those types of transport, whether we've administered medication or not. Actually, the fact that we have what we call a 5150 hold uh, applied by a uh, behavioral health, mental health professional or a police officer Normally, the uh, the result is throw them in the back of the ambulance, take them to wherever they need to go, and of course, we the we are the ones that are at risk should something happen untoward, whether it's fighting in the back or indeed the worst case. And of course, we have examples of this: patients exiting the vehicle at speed. Let's call it that. Then we've actually got some sort of uh, uh, immunity. It's probably the wrong word, but uh, but there is now a clause that says that uh, we are acting on behalf of somebody else, and we don't, we're not technically liable for the patient. It's, it's an interesting law, but actually it just gives us some degree of assurance when we accept these patients for transport. Uh, John, I think you're going to jump in there. Well, that that's a, a very important recognition, and it's nice to, uh, to hear that that is now formally acknowledged, at least in California. There, before we get into specific um, disease states or or conditions um i want to expand a little bit on several of the things that that doug alluded to because there are a couple of of um updates that apply across the board as we have been looking at the uh at the the text and the information there one has to do with the um AMLS assessment pathway that has been in place for many many years and uh we we got feedback from folks that it's sometimes you know previously that uh pathway Put conditions into life-threatening, critical, and non-emergent, and and there was some concern about what really defines an emergent, or I'm sorry, what really defines a critical patient. 
So those categories now have been clarified to be life-threatening, emergent, and non-emergent, um, you know, to, to hopefully demystify the, the criticalness uh, a little bit. Um, there, there was some variability in the textbook in the past when, when we referred to um, a number of things. You know, in some places, uh, cardiac dysrhythmias were referred to as arrhythmias. Um, you know, the, the only true arrhythmias are asystole and, and PEA. So now the book will consistently refer to them as dysrhythmias. Um, as, um, medicine has recognized, um, the, the change in the reference from congestive heart failure to heart failure of any etiology. So folks will note that um, there is um, increased emphasis, I think, on assessing blood glucose for patients with altered mental status, but acknowledging that it probably is not necessary to check a blood glucose on all patients, you know, sort of universally. Um, and then I think Vince will allude to this when, when we talk about the stroke things, but, you know, the Glasgow Coma Scale has been used forever and ever and ever with its three components and 15 points. And it's difficult to uh, sometimes quantitate that in the pre-hospital setting. So there's a lot more emphasis now on using uh, AVPU in describing uh, an individual's uh, level of consciousness rather than being specific about are they a Glasgow coma scale of 14, 13, 12, uh, because of its applicability in, in the out-of-hospital environment, particularly when we're assessing the motor components. So these are just some of the, the changes that folks will see consistently throughout the textbook. If you don't mind, if I just dovetail on what John was saying, because I, I did want to bring up that you had mentioned history of AMLS also, and uh, it originally was a different publisher, and then we had to rewrite the whole book. Um, and when we did that is where that AMLS path assessment pathway evolved from. And, you know, we've had a lot of uh, fabulous educators on the committee over the years. And <clears throat> at that particular time, there was a thought of let's put some structure because AMLS is designed to promote like critical thinking, medical decision-making skills. And we actually really focus on assessment, you know, more so than like specifics of treatment. So that AMLS assessment pathway really became kind of a core for the whole course. And as John mentioned, you know, there was some tweaking here where try to clarify that maybe the categories from critical, we call it emergent now. But <clears throat> I think that that's something that has really been one of the historical features, I think, that has sort of been a foundation for the course. Um, and in that opening um, chapter, we, we also added some material about like unconscious bias, how we approach patients, and a little bit about gender identity and some of those topics that really weren't there before. So I think that really rounds out that approach to the patient and assessment part. Um, 
And so jumping into the neurology part of it, this is something that is general, but I think came up through the neurology chapter is one of the longtime mnemonics that's been used in uh, in EMS and in medicine is sampler. Um, and uh, Dr. Coop is actually is the one that brought up, you know, part of that, the L there is for last meal is what it typically or traditionally has been. And, you know, he had brought up, does that something really fits for EMS? So we kind of did a group thought process on that and and try to make it more uh, meaningful for EMS is to use the L as last known well. Um, and that's where it dovetails into the stroke part because that's like a critical information for what treatments a patient might be eligible for. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, so that that went into the stroke uh, chapter. And as I think um, Doug had mentioned, we we did make sure we clarified the different levels of stroke centers now as that has evolved a little bit over time and um, you know, added more information about you know, recognition of large vessel occlusion. So in addition to stroke scales, just to identify stroke, to use stroke severity scores to help maybe um, triage those patients with a large vessel occlusion who might benefit from a comprehensive stroke center to be transported there directly. Um, and, and so there was some more discussion uh, regarding that aspect of it and cleaning up some of the language. Uh, John had mentioned, you know, we switched from arrhythmia to dysrhythmia. So we tried to be consistent instead of like thrombolytic using fibrinolytic, which I think is considered a little bit more precise and just to have some consistency of language. So some of the the minor things there. But um, yeah, I think that, oh, and the, I guess one more thing in the stroke uh, chapter we added the BFAS stroke scale, and which um, goes into some of the posterior circulation symptoms. And so we added some better awareness of, of that aspect so that uh, pre-hospital clinicians will have a little bit better understanding and how to recognize those um, syndromes and realize that they should also go to a stroke center. So, uh, Vince, thank you for that. And let's just take a moment to uh, have a word from Makara Trusty. Hey, I'm Makara Trusty. I am not only an NAEMT member, I'm also a, a member of the Lighthouse Leadership Committee. NAEMT, with support from FirstNet, built with AT&T, has developed a course to assist EMS agencies in building and supporting the mental health resilience of their personnel. The Mental Health Resilience Officer, or MHRO, course prepares EMS personnel to serve as their agency's mental health resilience officer. In this role, the MHRO will engage with peers to develop an understanding of mental health issues and resilience, identify peers who are experiencing mental health stressors and crises, navigate peers in need to the right services for help, and support the development of a culture of mental health resilience and emotional wellness within the agency. Available online and in a classroom format. And when your agency signs up for NAEMT membership, they will receive free access to this critically important course. For more details, contact membership at naemt.org or follow the links in the show notes. And we're back. Uh, thank you for that. 
little quick message, uh, Dr. Coopers. So, Rob, I think that one of the key things to talk a little bit about for those especially who have taken AMLS before, uh, they'll notice a bit of a different structure to the um, to the way that the course flows. Uh, of course, it starts with the AMLS assessment and the, the AMLS pathway, but we move the pharmacology chapter up to the beginning. And if you have not taken AMLS, you know, the pharmacology chapter in here is done very interestingly because it is not the typical, just a list of medications and their indications, contraindications, that sort of thing. It really gives the uh, AMLS clinician a deeper understanding of some of the principles of pharmacology and how things fit together. Uh, in, in structuring some of the other um, chapters, for example, uh, shock precedes sepsis, which then precedes infectious diseases. So those are all linked together because they do sort of flow. You have your patients in shock from you know general uh, issues that could cause shock, but then goes a little bit more detail into the septic patient and sepsis and treating sepsis, and then flows into the overall infectious diseases. Um, the mental health chapter was added formally in the last edition, but it was added after the edition was printed. So this is the first textbook that actually has it printed within the textbook rather than a freestanding extra supplemental chapter. And we added an entirely new chapter on women's health emergencies. And um, and as Vince uh, suggests, there is some information in chapter one when you're interviewing patients that uh, speaks to how we have cognitive biases related to how we assess patients and how we treat patients in some situations. And those can be uh, extrinsic or intrinsic. And you can be aware of some of your biases and, and everybody has some uh, subconscious biases too. There's a little bit of a discussion of that. And then we talk about approaching patients uh, related to their gender and preferences in chapter one. Well, in chapter 12, we go into specific women's health uh, emergencies and look at diseases and how they sometimes affect women differently, uh, or there are uh, perceptions and biases that uh, cause people to treat women differently with various diseases. So all of that sort of uh, approach to women's health is discussed there. And um, uh, I would also point out that uh, another big thing that we did was we're trying to tune up and make sure that the, the right content's in the right place. And there was a lot of information under the uh, toxicology section related to things that are typically uh, the toxicology of uh, issues of like weapons of mass destruction and the sea burning uh, issues. That has all been removed and put in the other course that NAEMT has, which is an all hazards course that is all about hazardous materials, uh, uh, MCIs, sea uh, burning uh, exposures to, to chemical, biological, uh, uh, et cetera, risks. So that's been moved there.
When we had our pre-discussion call, uh, Doug, we talked about uh, medication safety and uh, obviously the ways of identifying um, the appropriate drug to use. And uh, I certainly, back back in my operational days, every medic had the medication cross-check card uh, attached to the back of their ba- their badge, depending on whether it was a one provider or two provider, you know, operation, as it were. But uh, things uh, ha- have perhaps become a little bit easier by the way that we're lettering medication now. Yes, I, I think throughout the text, we have tried to um, be very careful about anything we can do to increase the um, the safety, uh, whether it's our pharmacologic uh, interventions or, or other interventions. Uh, one example of that is something called mixed case lettering. Uh, it used to be called uh, tall man lettering, but that's a little bit dated uh, and uh, sexist. But uh, now it's uh, referred to as mixed case lettering, which means that when you see the name of a medication, there's a a national group uh, of medication safety experts that has a a national list that is also uh, done in conjunction with a a list from the FDA that looks at commonly confused medications. And some medications, because the names are are rather complicated, uh, sometimes can be read by somebody and mistaken as the name of a different medication. So, uh, to to try to rectify that and make it safer, uh, many medications are uh, labeled or spelled with this mixed case lettering where there will be an emphasis on some capitalized portion of the term. And uh, so, for example, epinephrine, the epineph is capitalized and the rin is not. And that differentiates it when you're reading it from a medication like norepinephrine. So, you know, the, there are many examples of that through the commonly used EMS medications. And we've provided uh, the first time I've ever seen anybody actually take the very extensive lists from the ISMP and the FDA and just look at the medications that are common in EMS. And we put a, a list of those medications in there with their mixed case spelling, but we also use that spelling throughout the entire text anytime we referred to one of those medicines so that people would put the emphasis on the right part and not mix up uh, a similar medication. And that's a very clever idea, isn't it? Because then the spelling of that particular drug is the spelling of the mixed case label from, from here on out. Let's, let's, let's just do that. The initial reader might say, oh, geez, I wonder why they misspelled this uh, medication or why they (laughs) left these capitals in here. But if you read the pharmacology section, you'll understand exactly why many of the medications have a different spelling, Uh, not a different spelling, but a different emphasis on capitalization of some of the letters. Well, I think for one, it should go into all EMS parlance and communication. Well, that's an interesting comment, Rob, because I think that will ultimately occur. You know, I think we're going to see that much more commonly, and and, and I will project, you know, into, into other areas of EMS documentation. But you know, I'll be suggesting that to the Nemesis folks. And I'll give an example that Vince and I are very familiar with: is that Pennsylvania has statewide protocols, and for a number of years now, those medications that are listed in the statewide protocols have had that mixed case lettering. Uh, for quite a few years. Well, you heard it here, uh, folks out there in NAEMT land, uh, when you are describing or writing about these various drugs that we use 
uh, apply the mixed case lettering um, wording to it in everyday use because then it becomes second nature when you're writing up your uh, your EPCR when you're actually drawing the drugs down and it becomes part and parcel of you know the muscle memory dare I say of, of doing business so I think this is an excellent idea um, who wants to talk about uh, oxygen therapy yeah one of the things that we addressed uh, tried to do it systematically throughout the new textbook was how we addressed use of oxygen um, <clears throat> and so there are some conditions such as uh, a myocardial infarction, uh, ischemic stroke, um, where we may want to avoid having excessive levels of oxygen, um, even like uh, anoxic brain injury after cardiac arrest, where you don't need to have super high levels of oxygen. And so we actually have the concept of titrating the amount of oxygen usually recommending between uh, 95 and 99%, meaning that you don't have to get to that 100% oxygen saturation level. Um, and that <clears throat> that may help prevent some, you know, uh, injury that occurs from having too much oxygen, you can get oxygen-free radicals. But there are other conditions where we wanna make sure that the person does have sufficient oxygen. And we know that any episode of hypoxia can actually make the condition worse and affect mortality and morbidity. Uh, so conditions such as traumatic brain injury, at least for the pre-hospital portion, you know, we're stressing, you know, don't hesitate to give that person high flow oxygen. People that are extremely hypotensive and septic or in shock for any reason, really, you want to deliver as much oxygen as you can to the tissues. And example would be someone who has severe anemia. They have a low amount of total hemoglobin. Those people, you can have a oxygen saturation of 100%, but they're still not circulating as much oxygen as you would in a person that has a normal uh, hemoglobin level. So those specific situations, we we tried to not, you know, impress upon this concept that's been out there of limiting how high the oxygen level goes. Um, but in certain areas, like I mentioned, with like a focal ischemic process, then it may be particularly important to do that. I guess the one other group would be people with chronic lung disease that um, they, those people also may live at a lower oxygen level. So we don't have to push them up to 100% either. Um, but we still want them to be in a reasonable uh, range of oxygen saturations. Rob, I think that one of the uh, things related to what Vince just said is, you know, he he talked about how rather than having a one size fits all for somebody that needs oxygen, et cetera, we tried to have some principles for targets and goals, but um, it's not one size fits all. We've applied that across the board. I mean, the beauty of AMLS is to get people to think about patients individually and develop a, a differential diagnosis as you're assessing your patient and applying the AMLS pathway so that then you can apply the most appropriate uh, treatment. And I think, you know, throughout, in addition to what Vince just said about oxygen, uh, for example, not every patient needs an expensive nasal prong and tidal CO2 monitor device put on them just because they're a patient. We have a monitor and we have the device. 
we need to think about which patients the information from that device may change our uh, treatment or care and which ones it won't. And if it's not going to, don't just put it on because you have it, but if it's going to add to your information to help you with your differential diagnosis and to uh, alter the way you treat the patient. I think the same applies to pulse oximetry. It was mentioned earlier that the same applies to blood glucose. You know, we should not be sticking the finger of every EMS patient just because we have a blood glucose monitor. We should be doing it for the ones that have a chance of a glucose level that we're going to make some intervention on. So generally the people that have an altered level of consciousness. Talking about uh, applying things, uh, capnography, do we want to just uh, give a quick round out on that one? Um, one thing is, you know, it is a new tool that is fairly recently become, you know, available in the pre-hospital setting. And so part of this, I think, is we're still trying to learn how to best use this and all of these technologies, they can provide us this very interesting additional information that we never had available. But how do you interpret that? And how do you understand what those numbers really mean? Um, it, you know, it's interesting. Our helicopter system did a little study where, because we were <clears throat> using the capnography to um, adjust our ventilators very intensely. And then when they studied actually doing a blood gas in the field versus the capnography, we found there actually was a significant uh, discrepancy a lot of times between that. And you wouldn't have known that. So if you were strictly going by the capnography level, you could be doing the wrong thing. Um, and But yet in patients who are intubated, I think at least we get an accurate level of what the end title is. One of the concepts we bring up in the textbook is that when you're using the nasal prongs, you may not be getting a true reflection of the patient's end title level. There's various ways the person can be mouth breathing. You have, you know, different airflow with the oxygen concentrations. And so I think um, we tried to instill some understanding of trying to understand how to use the technology, what the limitations are of certain technologies and when they're going to be particularly useful, but also when you may be getting some, you know, wrong information from that. Excellent. As we get to the end of the uh, the podcast, uh, all of the links and obviously the link to AMLS 4th edition will be in the show notes. We could spend a long, long time talking about every nuance of the uh, of the update, but let's go around the houses. And my classic Rob ending question, I always ask this in every podcast, is there anything I've forgotten to ask or anything you want to add? And I know you do, John Kramer. Well, I'll just throw in a, a couple of uh, expansions and, and comments. You know, um, Doug mentioned that we had reordered some of the chapters, and and that includes the the sepsis chapter. Um, by by way of background, we thought there was a natural flow to have that follow the shock chapter. But the other thing we identified is that in the previous edition, the author had provided an excellent explanation in a very understandable way of the immune system. And having that in the uh, sepsis chapter then follows very nicely into the infectious diseases chapter, which has been expanded to include, no surprise, COVID-19, 
uh, monkeypox, Ebola, some of the other um, uh, infectious diseases that have arisen in significance since the last publication. Uh, we've also spent time qualifying the uh, PPE discussion and procedures for airborne risks and aerosol-causing procedures and, and things like that. The other thing that I'll mention, just because it was uh, important from my perspective, you know, when, when we were talking about environmental issues, uh, in the past there had been a lot of emphasis on um, uh, therapeutic hypothermia and cooling patients in the field. I think that we have realized that that really doesn't have a significant impact when it's done in the field. So that's been deleted. On the other side, we have also realized the uh, extreme importance of treating heat stroke in the field and starting to cool those patients even before transport. So there is, is reference in the book, as, as some uh, clinicians have already started to adopt, of, of using body bags with ice and water uh, to immediately start cooling patients in heat stroke. Now, we don't want to refer to them as body bags, so perhaps we'll start you know, coining a term um, uh, therapeutic temperature control device or something along those lines. Um, and then uh, Doug alluded to this, but there's a fairly uh, extensive expansion of various agents in the toxicology section to include a lot of agents that clinicians experience on a routine basis that uh, we felt was valuable to add some uh, additional comment. Um, and then to, to close that off, just addressing the uh, possible fentanyl exposure in environmental exposures and reinforcing to folks that um, a, an, unless there is a direct inhalation or uh, ingestion of fentanyl, you know, being in a room with a white powder is not a significant enough exposure to cause someone to overdose on fentanyl. So we've spent some time trying to explain that and clarify that as well. You nearly had me there, John. Uh, I could go on for hours about that last point you made there, but uh, we won't do that this time around. Maybe we can come back for another discussion. Um, Happy to. Uh, thank you. Dr. Coopers, your final thoughts? I guess my final thoughts are are more of a uh, tying up uh, some loose ends that we may not have mentioned. But, you know, the book is so packed with things, we can't mention all of the changes. But I will mention that uh, we did put some additional emphasis on the uh, use of vasopressors for the treatment of shock and and the various ways to do that from approaches to uh, epinephrine and anaphylaxis that have been outlined uh, more than they had in the past, but also to things like uh, diluted push dose uh, epinephrine for the treatment of shock and and some other uh, things like the introduction of information about using blood. And then I'll uh, also point out an, another important addition that's in the women's health uh, section, which is uh, information there about uh, human trafficking, about intimate partner violence, and sexual assault. Uh, so, you know, it's important, I think, for um, 
for EMS clinicians to being the eyes and ears in the field to be aware of some of the things related to human trafficking and some of these other issues because they can sometimes spot uh, issues related to that in in uh, uh, at the scene that isn't apparent by the time the patient gets to the emergency department. Thank you. And uh, finally, Dr. Massesso. Yes. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I appreciate that we had this time to talk about AMLS and something Doug said earlier um, caught my attention. He mentioned differential diagnosis, and that led me to think why I originally became such a strong supporter of this program. And I, it goes back to when I was asked to review this uh, by NAEMSP. So I thought one thing we should mention is that the course has always been endorsed by the National Association of EMS Physicians. And that's how I first heard about it. I reviewed the chapter many years ago. And I thought that, you know, this course, the value of it or the, say, the benefit is that it builds on a primary education for paramedics and added what we do as ER docs or approaches patients like we do. I shouldn't say ER anymore, but um, I think that gets the point across is that the way we approach patients and try to, uh, you know, make a differential diagnosis and do that critical uh, thinking part of it. So that's really what I think is a real value of the course. I think we've kept true to that flavor and we have made, you know, we went through those differential diagnoses, kept that in there, tried to improve that part all along through every chapter as well. So I think that's a, a big part of what makes AMLS AMLS. Thank you for those final words of wisdom. As you have all heard out there, this is chock full of top information. There are clearly a number of changes, things you need to pay attention to. So please follow the links in the show notes if you don't already uh, or aren't already acquainted with uh, the fourth edition. Please do so and do so now. Uh, for the moment, uh, Drs. Cromer, Coopers and Masesso, thank you very, very much indeed for joining us on NAMT Radio. Thank you so much. Wonderful to be here. Good. And so uh, coming up next time, just a little teaser for the next edition, I've got some of the alum from the graduating class of the NAEMT Lighthouse Project. And I'm looking forward to talking to them. They've been through the 18-month program. We saw them all uh, graduate uh, at uh, the NAMT annual general meeting down there in New Orleans this uh, last uh, few months ago. And so I look forward to chatting to them and uh, learning all about or hearing all about their experience as part of that lighthouse program so that's coming up next time but for the moment thank you doctors i've been rob lawrence this has been namt radio and until next time bye for now